welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. So on this episode, I speak with Dr. Hunter Mahaffey from West Virginia University. He's really an up-and-coming star in the field of atrial fibrillation. He's published several high-impact manuscripts before, but on this episode, what we focus on is Dr. Mahaffey's recent presentation at the AATS just a few weeks ago in Los Angeles, and then the uh, subsequent manuscript that was published in JTCBS. And in this uh, presentation and paper, what Dr. Mahaffey and his team uh, focused on was really kind of bridging the gap in the data with respect to what is the outcome difference in patients who undergo a surgical ablation with left atrial appendage management versus just left atrial appendage management alone? So he attempts to answer this question using the Medicare database. He analyzes over 100,000 patients, and we spend some time going over this paper. And we also get into uh, the other issues of what his training was like, Uh, coming up at UVA and how he became interested in atrial fibrillation also. So fantastic conversation with Dr. Mahaffey. I had a great time doing it. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kion Kui. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Hunter Mahaffey. Uh, For the listeners, you know, Hunter was my intern when I was a fellow at the University of Virginia, Um, but I'm very proud to say that he's made a huge impact in the field of atrial fibrillation. So without further ado, I'm going to hand this over to Dr. Mahaffey and let him kind of just tell us where he's from, where he is now, maybe a little bit about his journey. Uh, He is a I'd like to say new attending, um, first year out. So Hunter, floor is yours. Tell us about yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kiankui. Um, yes, our, uh, um, our relationship goes back, uh, I guess over a decade now. Um, when, uh, when I was just, just getting started out and you were in the final, uh, final stretch of your training. So, um, you know, over the, the, course of the last decade during my training at uh, University of Virginia, I had the opportunity to um, do some work looking at um, not only the impact of treatment of atrial fibrillation, but also um, within the population of patients undergoing heart surgery, uh, how many patients were actually not being treated uh, concomitantly during during their heart surgery, despite having a, a history of atrial fibrillation and um, had the opportunity to look at, you know, different barriers to, to treatment for, for these patients and, um, and how that affected their ultimate outcomes. But, um, 
as you mentioned, um, graduated uh, um, from training about a year ago, have started on faculty uh, here at West Virginia University, uh, do really the breadth of adult cardiac surgery, um, also a, a fair bit of, um, of AFib surgery, uh, especially concomitant treatment of AFib during, um, during heart surgery. So uh, with this new study that you that you asked me to talk about, I just presented uh, the paper um, at the American Association for Thoracic Surgeons uh, annual meeting out in LA, actually, and uh, the paper was uh, accepted for publication and is now online on the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. Um, and will be printed in a upcoming um, issue. So with no further ado, we'll talk a little bit about that that paper. Uh, it was can, entitled, I, uh, can I can I interrupt yeah. you there really quickly though? Please. So uh, we're, we're absolutely going to get into the paper 100%, but something that just kind of creeped into my head is how does somebody so early in their career, kind of get an interest in AFib. I mean, I would be surprised if as an undergraduate, you were like, you know what, AFib is where it's at. I'm going to do AFib research. I'm going to go into general surgery. I'm going to go into cardiac. So when did the kind of the light bulb go off for you? When, when did AFib become something that interested you? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. And I think what it comes down to, as with many things in life, um, especially in our surgical life, is is mentorship and um, you know seeing and uh, and learning about it from uh, from more senior faculty or uh, or folks that really have uh, paved the way for the the treatment of of AFib and um, you know I, I still recall uh, you know very specifically uh, management of, of patients with with AFib. Um, Either before or after heart surgery, but also, you know what a what a frustrating disease process it is, and and um, you know as you review the literature and see the the really outstanding results um, that that started all the way back to to the early days of uh, of Dr. Cox and and really you know curing atrial fibrillation um, with a surgical uh, with a surgical procedure. Yet we have all of these patients who, you know, struggle continuously having to deal with uh, blood thinners and, you know, the sequelae of that, whether it be GI bleeding or, um, or, or other issues. Uh, and, and also the, the long-term uh, effects of long-standing atrial fibrillation on cardiac function and patients with uh, cardiomyopathy related to their, to their AFib. And, and, you know, it always struck me as it, it was just surprising that more patients didn't receive surgical treatment of their, of their atrial fibrillation. And so I think that's, that's really probably what piqued my early clinical interest. But, but as I mentioned, you know, um, our, our mentors that, uh, that, that teach us along the way, you know, um, Dr. Gaurav Alawadi, excellent uh, uh, surgeon and, and someone that really uh, was a, a strong supporter of, of treatment of, of AFib, did stand along maze, and and, uh, and then obviously seeing you uh, go on to, to the success you, you've had and, and the, the patients you've been able to help um, through your uh, through your practice. And then now being here at, uh, at WVU, Dr. Badwar, you know, really 
has published a, a, a large body of the of the literature in in the treatment of AFib and um, and is a, a very strong uh, advocate for for concomitant treatment as well as standalone treatment. Um, you know, I think he did a, an outstanding. Uh, episode on uh, on your podcast a few months ago. So um, I had the, the opportunity to work with him even before I, I joined faculty um, working on his series of robotic um, maze with you know nearly 95% freedom from AFib, antiarrhythmics, or blood thinners at five years. It's you know it's a that's a that's that's a big deal for these uh, for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the people that you did. You know, Dr. Alawadi or Gorov, as we all know, he's now the chair at Michigan. Uh, he was faculty for both of us when we were at UVA. And I remember being his fellow and standing in on the off pump, you know, the TT maze or the VATS maze or whatever you want to call it. And Gorov was the one who kind of introduced me to this space as well. And he's just been such an amazing mentor. So you know, can't thank Dr. Alawadi enough. And then Dr. Badwar, I mean, my gosh, just like you said, talk about pillars in the field. I mean, he's done so much to teach us about atrial fibrillation. And I think what, like you said, his most recent uh, uh, manuscript revealing his results with the robotic maze just really kind of shows us what the potential of a very well done surgical operation can be. And so that was uh, kind of opened my eyes. I didn't realize that the the results were that great. And uh, yeah, so some really, really amazing mentors. So, um, well, thank you for sharing that with us. One last thing I kind of want to know about you, since I wasn't there at the tail end of your training, uh, can you maybe share with us how you felt as far as comfort, skill set wise, with treating atrial fibrillation when you finished your fellowship at UVA, were you doing the whole biatrial cox maze? Were you in the standalone space? Were you doing VATS procedures? Can you kind of walk the listener through how you felt your training was and, and how important that was to you? Yeah, certainly. That's a, uh, that's, that's a good point. And, and really something that you and I have, have spoken about previously um, is the kind of state of, of training in, uh, in this country and, and where, you know, what the expectation is for uh, trainees when they graduate and where, where they, they should be from an experience as well as a comfort standpoint. Um, you know, especially if you're, thinking about, okay, you know, I'm going to do a, a aortic valve replacement, you know, you're thinking through the steps of this, and then it, it's, it's a whole nother thing to add on, you know, a biatrial maze to a procedure where you're, you're not planning on opening either atria, you know, you're not planning on doing uh, bicable cannulation, you're, you know, you, you really are, are changing the dynamics of that operation pretty dramatically. And, and so I, I, I agree, you have to have a, a certain level of comfort and, um, and, and experience to, to be willing to add that on, um, to, to procedures, especially, you know, closed atrial procedures like, like coronary bypass or aortic valve procedures, um, to, to speak specifically to my, my level of experience, you know, I had outstanding faculty that, that really along the same lines of, uh, of, of Dr. Alawadi, you know, really believed in, in treatment, concomitant treatment of, uh, of atrial fibrillation, especially. Um, I will say, you know, my, my experience and uh, exposure to standalone uh, maze was, was dramatically less. I think one of the things that uh, 
a lot of the fellows around the country have had the opportunity, and even the even faculty is the um, uh, I don't know if you remember you you came and visited as a visiting faculty and and did a um, a hands on wet lab course for uh, for concomitant uh, or for AFib ablation, and um, we talked about the different devices available and and different strategies, and also had. Um, uh, you know, cadavers available for for sort of a more hands-on training. So I, I think experiences like that are critical. And, um, you know, that's really where we need to, uh, that's where the future of the, the field is, is, is making sure that um, when folks graduate, when they get started into practice, that it's the culture that we, you know, it, it's it's a no-brainer that we treat this disease just like, you know, if you were going to do a um, treat coronary artery disease and the patient also has a defective aortic valve, you know, you would never consider just leaving severe AS when you go in and do a cabbage. But, uh, you know, all the time we leave AFib untreated when uh, um, when we go in to, to do coronary bypass. And that's, you know, um, foreshadow a little bit of, of what our study found. But yeah, the, you know, just the gross under treatment of the disease process. I think it just requires a little bit of shift in the mindset. And um, and also, you know, as as we've shown, more data to support the, the benefits of, of treatment of AFib. Yeah, well, I think that's a perfect segue. So let's uh, get back to what I so rudely interrupted you about 10 minutes ago. So Let's, let's get into this fantastic presentation and manuscript that you presented to all of us at the AATS just, just a little bit ago now, actually. Um, so it's entitled, Surgical Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation is Associated with Improved Survival Compared to Appendage Obliteration Alone, an Analysis of 100,000 Medicare Beneficiaries. All right, Dr. Mahaffey, it's all yours. Walk us through this brilliant work that you've uh, presented and published now. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you again for inviting me um, to talk about the, the the paper. So, you know, as you well know, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners uh, well know, the concomitant treatment of AFib has class one recommendations um, with level A evidence, meaning there's randomized controlled trial evidence uh, during the treatment of mitral valve surgery. And that's thanks to the, um, the, the CTSN trial, uh, as well as uh, class one level B evidence, uh, meaning uh, large registry data supporting the, uh, the use of concomitant treatment during aortic valve surgery and coronary surgery. And, um, and so, you know, looking at this through uh, the framework of, of knowing that we have guidelines that recommend uh, the, the concomitant treatment um, and, uh, and then trying to, to also frame that within the, the more recent results of, um, you know, when the 2017 guidelines came out, there was really no um, large scale data to to guide us on 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 where when to use appendage obliteration alone versus uh, appendage obliteration with with ablation, and, and so that's really where the the premise for this study started is, you know, when when faced with a, a patient that you have to uh, you know you're performing a, a cardiac operation on, and they also have a history of 
of pre-op AFib. W- you know, what do you do? What you know, the Laos three uh, clinical trial, which is a very large international study, um, very important information uh, gleaned from that uh, uh, from that trial. We demonstrated a two point two percent reduction in stroke, um, in uh, in only three in the in only three point eight years. You know, we already saw a massive reduction in stroke just by uh, ligating the appendage. Um, but you know, this study it, it also included some patients that got uh, ablation as well as the appendage ligation, and the study was not really um, powered to detect a survival difference. And, and you know, they that that's that's not really the was not really the purpose of the of the study. But you know, so we have this strong evidence now that's come out since the guidelines, since the 2017 guidelines. But but how do we put that in in uh, in reference with uh, with the guidelines and then with our real world practice of, of, you know, we know it takes longer to do an ablation. We know, you know, you, especially for a, a cabbage or an AVR, you're also, you're going to have to change your cannulation strategy. You're going to, um, be opening, uh, parts of the heart that you wouldn't otherwise be opening. So how, how do we put this all into, in, in, into relation and, uh, and, and how do we answer that question? You know, obviously, Yes, we'd all love a huge randomized controlled clinical trial because you know that's that's the gold standard, right? But um, that's not always feasible, and, and I think that there, you know, there's a large body of literature supporting um, treatment of AFib, and and so to to really suss out and try to figure out one, you know, what does the current landscape look like nationally, but also more importantly, um, is through robust statistical methods, are we able to understand a little bit more about uh, which patients should undergo which treatments? Should everyone get ablation and appendage closure? Should certain patients only get appendage closure? You know, what? How, how does that really fall out? So, in order to answer that, we uh, we use the largest data set that uh, uh, that exists. The the um, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services inpatient database captures all patients over the age of 65 who are hospitalized. And, um, and really it gives us a nice cross-sectional uh, picture of what the current practice is and, and then allows us to make some, um, through comparative effectiveness methodology, allows us to make some, um, uh, some uh, uh, conclusions about uh, which treatment is, is best for which patients. Um, so as I mentioned, use the CMS, um, data set uh, from 2018 through 2020. So uh, three years worth of data. Um, we looked at uh, 100,000 patients, 103,000 patients that were undergoing open heart surgery who had a history of atrial fibrillation. Now this included both paroxysmal and persistent AFib. Um, and uh, we looked at only patients who were undergoing elective first time heart surgery. So uh, excluded all emergent operations, excluded patients that had had prior surgery. And we were really focused on patients undergoing cabbage uh, or coronary surgery and, uh, and then valve surgery, including aortic mitral and tricuspid surgery. So we took, we stratified the patients by uh, whether they received no treatment for their AFib during their heart surgery, whether they received appendage ligation alone, or whether they received um, uh, ablation and appendage ligation. So that was our our three groups um, performed a very robust uh, risk adjustment using inverse probability of treatment weighting. Uh, multi-level regression and um, Cox proportional hazards. We also 
then uh, followed up with some sub subgroup analyses to look at kind of specific populations of patients to understand a little bit more about uh, you know which population may benefit more from from one treatment or another. Um, and our primary outcome was a hard endpoint of freedom from death or stroke. Um, you know, there's obviously a large body of literature, as you well know, uh, looking at um, rhythm outcomes, looking at, uh, you know, following patients serially with EKGs um, and, and looking at uh, echo uh, outcomes. And, and really, in a large national data set like this, we didn't didn't have the uh, ability to to have that level of, of follow up. So we uh, selected to, to focus on what was tracked, which is is the patient alive and have they had a major stroke? And um, and I think most patients suffering from AFib would agree that the, the, those are probably two of the most important things uh, in their life. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. So uh, that was kind of the the layout of the of the study, and 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 what we found was uh, you know initially uh, just looking at what percent of patients get treated? Uh, you know, if you take all comers and this 103,000 includes coronaries and includes everybody. Um, unfortunately, 77.4% of patients received no treatment for their atrial fibrillation. Do you want uh, to just say that again? We want to say that again for the yeah, listener so. and anyone who's listening. I mean, this is just mind boggling. And from 2018 to 2020, after, after the guidelines, the guidelines right. right? I think it's super important to state that. Now, we all kind of have different interpretations of how long does it take guidelines to actually come into practice. But this is maybe data that says doesn't happen in three years. Right. No, <laughs> I, I think absolutely that's exactly right. Um, you know, nearly 80% of patients did not receive any treatment. Um, about 12.5% uh, got appendage uh, uh, ligation alone. And, uh, and just over 10% uh, received any ablation. And the other, you know, grain of salt, uh, important thing to consider with this, um, with this analysis is because of the nature of the database uh, and the way that um, surgical ablation is um, reimbursed through Medicare, we are unable to determine, was it a PVI? Was it a full biatrial maze? So really it's ablation, yes or no. So so honestly, the bar is even lower, right? I mean, this is this could just be a patient that you're doing a, a cabbage on and just throw the, uh, uh, the the clamp on and do a quick PVI, and that would count as an ablation, right? That would count as the, the optimal uh, treatment uh, by the way that we're looking at this. So I, I think that it's, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, barely 10% of patients got any ablation at all. Yeah, the other really interesting thing too, maybe even more depressing, is that if you look at the subset of the persistent patients, and maybe you were gonna you were gonna highlight this, but I just wanted to get into it. You want to tell us about that? I mean, this is these are patients who have at least, you know, they have continuous AF for more than seven days. They likely came to the operating room in atrial fibrillation, right? You can you can almost you know give people the benefit, surgeons the benefit of the doubt. If somebody had paroxysmal and they showed up and they were in sinus and the surgeon says, okay, well, I'm not going to treat patients on an AFib. Maybe, maybe right. you can, you can do that. But a persistent patient, you want to talk to us about treatment in the, pers yeah. in the persistent group? Yeah. So treatment in persistent group, unfortunately it was better, but not, uh, so 65.2% of patients in a persistent AFib, so 24,000 uh, patients with persistent AFib, 65% of them, no treatment, not even a clip. 
uh, about 15% uh, got a clip and uh, just under 20% uh, ended up with uh, an ablation of some sort. So, um, well, do you want to give us some good news? Do you want to tell us the, the population that actually got treated the most? Can, can we at least flip the coin a little bit? <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, thankfully, and this again, you know, based on the 2017 guidelines, level 1A with randomized controlled trial evidence that there's a survival benefit for ablation uh, in patients going uh, undergoing open atrial operation. So what this means is really it's a majority of these patients are uh, patients that received mitral valve surgery. And that's what the CTSN trial looked at. That's what the, the guidelines really um, have the strongest recommendation for. So 17,000 patients undergoing uh, a mitral operation and or a tricuspid operation. Um, uh 30% got ablated and 25% got at least an appendage closure. So now our non-treatment group is under 50%. Finally, that's the, it's the first time that we treat uh, over half of the patients uh, when you're opening the atrium and operating on the mitral valve. Right. So at least there's something to be said for that. You know, the other thing I just want to reemphasize that you mentioned, because I, I imagine we're going to hop into the results here soon. We talked about kind of under treatment at this point, but the fact that you mentioned that you could not really ascertain the level of ablation, basically you either got some sort of ablation or not. That's really important when interpreting these results because you had such positive results. Right. Like imagine if everybody got a biatrial maze, so they actually got the optimal surgical ablation for AFib. And again, you can argue that because we don't have randomized control studies, but we have some pretty darn good retrospective data. And um, But yeah, so if you do something, if you ablate something, if you, you know, manage the left atrial appendage, what did what what did we learn? What did let, let's go ahead and unpack that yeah. data? Yeah, let's uh, let's hop right into it. Um, you know, as mentioned, so all of this data is uh, undergone very robust uh, risk adjustment with uh, with advanced methodology, and and the, what we end up with are very well balanced groups. Um, so we really tried to risk adjust out, you know, the eyeball test and, and, um, you know, obviously that data is not in the, uh, in the Medicare data set, but, you know, we can account for age, all the patient's, uh, medical conditions, um, what, uh, whether they, they had, uh, any other particular, the, you know, the way they presented, uh, what valve or what their pathology was, you know, so we were able to adjust out many of those things, but obviously there is always some susceptibility for, for selection bias. Um, but, you know, just, uh, just kind of jumping into it. Um, what we found is that um, patients who received treatment for their, um, for their atrial fibrillation uh, had a significant survival benefit, meaning they live, they were more likely to be alive at three years, if they received any treatment, whether they got clipped or uh, or ablated and 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 uh, appendage closure, they were more likely to be alive than if they had received no treatment. And uh, um, and I think that that is a um, is a very very important message. Uh, first of all, but um, uh, um, you know more importantly, when we look even closer and try to figure out, you know, between the appendage closure group and those that got ablated, 
we also see a survival difference. And this is um, this is in the total populations. This is in all 100,000 patients, um, regardless of persistent or paroxysmal. So uh, we see a survival benefit at three years for patients who got ablated and appendage closure versus those who got appendage closure alone. So, I mean, that, that says a lot. And at an endpoint of only three years, um, you know, really a lot of cardiac surgery, we look at 30 day outcomes. And, and so the fact that we're, we're seeing this uh, dramatic benefit, even within three years, I think is, um, is very important. Yeah. And it uh, does seem like there, we are going through a bit of a shift in how we think about mortality in patients in AFib. I think historically there, the data would have suggested that patients died from their AFib because they had a large stroke. And now I think there's been a pivot to patients are dying from heart failure from their AFib. So if you manage their left atrial appendage, you might prevent that stroke, but now they're living less if, if, right. if you're not ablating them, if you're not trying to, if you're not uh, addressing the heart failure side of atrial fibrillation. Right. And this doesn't even get into some of the emerging data about uh, quality of life. So, uh, you know, there are there are a reasonable portion of the population that do not uh, feel their AFib. To, you know, they can't tell if they're an AFib, but there's a lot of patients that can and they feel really crummy. And, you know, that doesn't even uh, include the patients that have to stay on antiarrhythmic medications that have a, a wide range of, of um, side effects. Patients that are on blood thinners, as we already mentioned, and, and and all of the risk factors associated with that. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal, and, and I think it, it's an important point that you make. That um, yes, it's important to prevent stroke, but there's there's also data that not all strokes come from the appendage. So, you know, even with an appendage obliteration, the the guideline recommendations are actually to remain on anticoagulation, even even with a, a, a complete closure of your appendage. Um, to prevent the risk of stroke. So I think that's an important point. And so if we really want these patients to have a survival benefit, to be off of antiarrhythmic medications, to feel better, and to be off of blood thinners, we need to get them back into sinus rhythm. Right. And also, you know, as surgeons, we try to think about kind of the long-term picture for our patients also, right? We're not providing surgery for these patients to improve survival necessarily at one year, two year, three years, right? I mean, when, when we talk generically about heart surgery. We we perform coronary artery bypass grafting to provide people long-term benefit. We perform mitral valve repair to provide people long-term benefit. So here, if you ignore or omit treatment of the atrial fibrillation, you've kind of discounted your index procedure, right? Here you are taking this patient to the operating room to provide some long-term benefit from their coronary bypass, their mitral valve repair, your aortic valve, but then you discount it because you don't treat the refib. I mean, it's really a shame. I mean, it's a shame when you're looking at the non-treatment percentages of 65% of persistence or 80% all comers. I mean, we're discounting 80% of our patients. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I fully agree. And that's why I feel like this is a, this is a very important topic uh, for discussion, important topic to get more data out. Uh, about and an important topic for education, uh, educating 
you know, folks in our generation, surgeons that are uh, that are coming out of training, surgeons that are 10 years into training, and even surgeons that are in their final years of training about the importance of, of doing this. This is not, um, you know, this is not just a, a, a flashy thing that's, you know, will be around for a couple of years and fade out of uh, uh, fade out of style. This is this is something that, that really affects uh, affects our patients in a, in a major way. Do you have a sense of kind of what a solution may be, or at least components of a solution? Obviously, you've done some research in the past with surveys asking surgeons why they don't treat, but kind of moving maybe a little bit away from that and just getting kind of your your personal opinion on what do you think it's going to require to have an inflection of our of our treatment here? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting question uh interesting thing and 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 what i would what i always go back to is um you know after floyd loop published the seminal paper on the survival benefit of lima to lad back in the 80s um people didn't immediately start doing a lima to lad it was uh easier to throw some vein on it's you know it's quicker um you do more bypasses with vein um really it really caught on in the the rate of um, use of lima to LED for coronary bypass changed dramatically when it became a quality metric, when it became a trackable, reportable metric, and uh, and that's you know that's that's hard to think about and that's hard to uh, to process. What you know, how does that fit into our daily practice? And but you know, right now in the uh, in the most recent um, data from the STS national database, the rate of left internal mammary use to the LAD is like 99.7%, um, which is impressive. I mean, really it's, it's almost unheard of now to, to do a, a, a cabbage operation without, uh, without doing that portion of the procedure. And, you know, I, I don't know, may, you know, maybe, there are factors, um, and, and you know, I, I don't necessarily believe personally that 99.7% of patients should undergo a biatrial Cox maze if they have a history of AFib, um, because there are, you know, there there are real world um, considerations. I think that it is a much bigger operation, and, and I think you have to personalize the care a little bit. But I think that. Treatment of AFib as just a, a baseline, you know, whether you're ligating the appendage, whether you're doing a, a, a pulmonary vein isolation, um, whether you're doing a, a biotrolysis, I think everyone should should get something, um, and uh, and so I think that that's where we have to start, and and then we have to think about how we thoughtfully implement um, this as a trackable metric. And, and I think that it, then it will improve and I think we will treat more patients. Um, but I, I do think we have to be thoughtful about it because, um, just as we've already discussed, some of the, the barriers are, are education and comfort with doing these procedures. So we shouldn't be demanding that the surgeons are doing procedures that, that they are not necessarily uh, adequately supported for. So I, I think that there's uh, there's a balance there, but I think the the answer to your question um, is, is is make it trackable. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I think that's absolutely the direction we need to go uh, go to. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that with the Laos three data that at least appendage management won't be the first maybe step 
you know, as a quality metric for patients with pre-existing AFib. Um, and then hopefully one day we'll get to a surgical ablation. Like you said, there's plenty of data now to at least suggest that, you know, that, uh, it improves patient outcomes. We've been, you know, we have randomized mitral data. Like you said, we have guidelines supported, um, recommendations from our society. So I, I love that idea. I hope, you know, that happens sooner than later, at least with the appendage management and moving forward with ablation. Um, because otherwise, like we talked about, this really is a, a disservice to our, to our patients. And yeah, and I agree with you. We can't have 99.7% adoption of biatrial maze, but your data just showed that, or at least we can infer from your data that not everybody got a biatrial maze and there were significant stroke and mortality benefits. So um, something is better than nothing. So, well, that was a lot to unpack, uh, but yet another huge impactful uh, study that you've uh, presented to us. And we can't thank you enough for all the hard work that you've done in the past and you're currently doing and all the great work you're doing at WVU and all your, your, uh, mentors, you know, you are a mentor for so many people now, uh, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic to have you as kind of one of the, the, uh, the stewards in the, of this field. So, um, I'll finish up there, but I'll leave the floor to you for the last few minutes. If there's anything else you want to go ahead and share with us, um, any future projects you're working on or any closing thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I think um, yeah, I, I really I think that we really hit the message well. I think the only other thing you know about this study, and then kind of segues into into future um, into future studies, is you know when we do look at, um, at at our subgroup analysis, and we we dive a little bit deeper into patients undergoing closed atrial operations versus open atrial operations, meaning whether they were having a mitral procedure being an open and versus a, a coronary or an aortic valve procedure as a closed atrial. Um, we do see some, some, uh, some important differences when it comes to freedom from stroke. Um, and, and very interestingly, um, I was very surprised by this, this data, but in the patients undergoing uh, open atrial operations, presumed to be mitral surgery, um, we, we actually don't see the stroke benefit uh, for appendage ligation alone, there, there, we, we didn't see no, no no difference there. And then this was kind of a subtle finding in the in the study, but um, something that we're going to look a little bit more into. You know, as I had mentioned earlier, there is data to support that not all strokes from AFib come from the appendage. Yes, an overwhelming majority do, but particularly in patients that have mitral valve disease, very very large atria. You know, so I think it really highlights again the importance of class 1A recommendation for, for concomitant ablation during mitral valve surgery for these, these patients with pre-op AFib. So, you know, I think that, that that's a, that that's something we're going to be exploring a little bit more. And, um, and, and so I, I'll kind of leave the, the audience with that thought and, um, you know, how we, how we put that all together and how we make sure where the rubber hits the road that, that the patients are getting the appropriate treatment, um, I think there's certainly more to come. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's a, it's a really interesting kind of crumb to leave us with. We will follow that hopefully to another STS or ATS presentation. I'm sure I can see that grin on your face. There's something in the works. So, um, well, Dr. Mahaffey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the program. And, uh, we, we, uh, we look forward to 
some of the more work that you're going to present soon, I'm sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and, and as always, I, uh, I appreciate your, your friendship and your mentorship. Take care. Thanks, Hunter. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.